My name's Scott. I've been coming to LCC regularly since 2010, so a few years I've been around here. I've actually known about LCC for a long time. Um, I was a church planter back in the days when Tom Bernardo was planting this church, and so um, I've known about LCC for a long time and, and sort of been part of the vision around here for, for that long, and uh, it's a good place to be. So I'm part of the teaching team, and today they asked me to take a segment of our Elijah Elisha series. So we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 21. If you want to, you can go ahead and start turning there. We're not going to read it right away, but um, if you've been anywhere near the, the news in the last few weeks, you probably know the name Harvey Weinstein, right? And we all groan. Um, Mr. Weinstein was uh, one of the uh, co-founders of Miramax Films, has been one of the most powerful men in Hollywood for the last 20 years or so, and um, in the, the story originally exposed in the New York Times, uh, Mr. Weinstein is accused of engaging in a long-standing pattern of uh, basically manipulating young up-and-coming actresses. Uh, forcing them to do certain favors for him in exchange for uh, him helping them climb the ladder uh, in Hollywood. And the story and the, the allegations that, that uh, have followed, um, there's actually been a number of other women come out and say, yes, it happened to me too. And it actually uh, started a social media campaign, uh, hashtag me too, where hundreds of thousands of women around our country um, also said, yes, me too, I've been a victim of sexual harassment or sexual abuse in some way or another. Now, I'm, going to begin, I'm beginning today's message with this still unfolding story because it illustrates for us uh, a human pattern of behavior that we're going to see in the Scripture today. And the, the pattern goes like this. It uh, starts with a person or persons, a group of people who are in a position of power of some kind. And in these uh, situations, then there's always a weaker person or persons. So relative to the power person, there's a weaker person or persons. And what happens is the power person uses their power in some immoral way to manipulate the weaker person so that some type of benefit flows back to the power person. Now, this pattern of human behavior, behavior is not new. It's as old as humanity, and uh, the Weinstein case, as horrible as it is, is not unique. Church hierarchies have done it. Bosses do it at work. Um, family bosses, matriarch patriarchs do it. Um, modern politicians do they do it? Never. <laughs> so what we want to do this morning is take a look at how this pattern unfolded in the life of Elijah and the event that we're going to, to read about today. And then we want to move beyond that to start to uncover how, can, how does your life, how does my life, and, and in particular, how does God intersect with this pattern of broken human behavior? So we're going to read uh, in 1 Kings chapter 21. 
This is actually a story that uh, I've read before, but I've actually now I've been preaching for a long time, but I've never preached this particular story. So, um, but God's word for us today. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, "Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace." In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then the two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we just, uh, as we just sang, we want your spirit to be strong in us today. We're weak, we're uh, broken people, uh, far from perfect. But we're here today because we want that to change, and we know that you're the source of that kind of change. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would be strong in these uh, people as they listen today and interact with your word, and I pray that your spirit would be strong in me as I share uh, where I think you've directed me and where, where I think you've directed us as a body uh, to interact with this message. Jesus, we depend on you. We pray in your name. Amen. So, we're continuing this series today, you know, Swimming Upstream, and And the last two weeks, Tom um, has introduced us that in this series, there's going to be three characters that we see over and over again. And uh, those characters are the dysfunctional power players, um, then there's the prophet, and then there's the remnant uh, that we will see over and over again through the Elijah-Elisha series. And and I thought that, that the way today's text kind of flows, I thought it would be good for us just to walk through the text following each of these characters and um, seeing what we can learn from each of them. So we're just going to do that, and um, 
So still headlining is the ultimate dysfunctional power couple, Ahab and Jezebel. Um, now, just a reminder, Ahab was king over Israel, which was what they called the northern tribes of God's people at the time. Uh, Judah was the southern tribes of uh, God's people then. But Ahab was king over Israel, which was based in Samaria. His wife Jezebel was not um, a Jewish person at all. She was actually the daughter of a Sidonian king. And because of that, and because of her family heritage, she was a worshiper of Baal, one of the primary objects of pagan idol worship in that day. Um, And as we just kind of watch Ahab and Jezebel unfold through this story, we can start to make some observations about dysfunctional power and how it works in the human person. Um, The first thing that we notice is that that dysfunctional power people um, usually begin a request with that seems innocuous at first, that seems innocent and not really a big deal. Um, Ahab says to Naboth in verse 2, let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Now that to us seems pretty innocuous, right? I mean, what's the big deal? You and I, we buy and sell houses and land all the time and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, But you see, it was there was something wrong with my iPad. Um, <laughs> it was actually a bigger deal, a uh, much bigger deal in the Jewish culture. Um, Leviticus 25, you can read that later today. Um, it'll help you have your nap this afternoon. But <laughs> Leviticus 25 actually um, gives you the background for, for why selling land was a big deal in the, in the Jewish culture. And I'm just going to boil it down like this. Basically, um, God had given the promised land to his people. Um, And when he gave that land to them, he was actually giving them the physical land under their feet. Um, It wasn't just a, you know, kind of a broad statement, I'll give you the land. No, it was the land under their feet is what God was giving them. And in doing so, that land became part of a family's identity. So it was part of their identity as a family, but it was also part of their identity as the people of God. Um, And actually, if you you see how the Jews uh, today in Israel argue about land, there's some of the same kind of theme following through 2,000 years later. The land is extremely important to the Jewish people and their identity. So, When Ahab comes to to Naboth and says, sell me your land, what he was actually, it seems innocent to us, but what he was actually saying was, Naboth, I want to take your identity as a family. I want to take your identity. Actually, I want to slap God in the face because he's the giver of the land. I don't care. I want it to belong to me. Um, So a seemingly innocuous request is where it starts. Second thing we see about dysfunctional power is that it's frequently characterized by childish behavior. Um, Verse 4, we see this, and I always kind of want to laugh at verse 4, but it's so sad that I don't think I should laugh. It says, So Ahab went home sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. And so he lay on his bed sulking, 
and refused to eat. Now, if this was a four-year-old, that'd be normal, right? This is an adult man. And he's laying on his bed, sulking, refusing to eat, because a guy said, no, I'm not going to sell you my land. Um, You know, when we're thinking about broken, dysfunctional people, one of the things that, that is that is often true uh, is that somewhere between the progression from childhood to adulthood, a broken, dysfunctional person gets stuck somewhere along the way. They, they stop progressing in certain areas of their life and basically never grow up. There's a television show, you're all familiar with it, right? Arrested Development. I've never watched it, actually, but I understand that's what the whole show is about. Um, it's people, adults, who don't, haven't grown up. Um, and the fact of the matter is, when a person like this gets in a position of power, that position of power doesn't automatically make them grow up. Instead, they bring those childish behaviors with them as they govern. Um, it's from the same place of arrested development, so you end up with, with that kind of leadership. Third thing, then, we see about dysfunctional power is that it will gladly use religious pretense for its purposes. When um, Jezebel starts to build her scheme against, uh, against Naboth, it's interesting. Remember, Jezebel is not Jewish, but she apparently knows enough about Jewish faith and religious practice that she knows how to use it. And so she specifies uh, in her plan that Naboth should be charged with uh, cursing God and king. Cursing God and king in the Jewish uh, law was punishable by death. And she also seemed to know that in Jewish law, if you were going to punish somebody with death, that it required the agreed witness of two people. So two people had to say, yes, this person did this before you could enact the death penalty. So she uses her knowledge of the the Jewish religion in order to manipulate the religious community into carrying out her plan. And so I want to just take a look at the dysfunctional power and the the principles that we see here. Um, Do we recognize any of these patterns in our world today. Um, politics, national politics, local politics, do we ever see it? Maybe you see it in the boss-employee relationships at work. Maybe you see it in the bullies at school and the way they work. Maybe, maybe you see it in, in your family or a family that you're familiar with, dysfunctional family dynamics sometimes follow these patterns. I mean, I think it really, it's everywhere. Um, but I want us to stop and, and rather than thinking out there where we see it, I want us to start thinking more personally about this. Misusing power against weaker parties. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise a question here that I really don't like. Um, 
It came up in our teaching team, and I was like, I I don't want to answer that question. But I'm going to raise it because I had to answer it, so I think you should have to answer it. (laughs) The question is this. Where do I have power? Where do you have power? Let me, I'll just give you a short list that I came up with for myself. I'm a male, and that gives me certain advantages over females in certain situations. I am a U.S. citizen. If you've ever traveled outside the United States, you'll find that being a U.S. citizen, the blue passport comes with its privileges and its power. I'm Caucasian. And that, unfortunately, sadly, in our society, still gives me power and advantages over those who are not Caucasian. I'm college-educated, and that gives me advantages. I have a stable, good-paying job. That gives me advantages in life. I'm a father, and that gives me certain levels of influence over my children, although as adults, not as much as when they were this big, right? Um, I'm a boss at work. I have a young lady that works for me. I have a certain level of power over her and her life. I preach God's word on occasion, and in this setting, that gives me a certain level of power with you and with, with the body called LCC. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things. They just, it just is. It's not right or wrong. It just is. Um, and I want you to think about that in your life. Where are those places where God has given you power over someone else. And then the follow-up question is even worse. How am I using that power towards others? How am I using it? Are Are there any situations where I am using my advantages to take advantage of someone else who's in a relatively weaker position? Is there any place where I'm using people for my good rather than working for their good? I want to maybe, I thought maybe an example would help here. So um, I'm an IT manager for a company, and uh, recently I had to investigate an employee who had been using his company email for uh, personal behavior, shall we say, and um, which is not allowed. And so I had to go through his email, see what he was doing, all of the details. And to be honest, the the stuff that I read in his emails about what he was doing in his private life uh, was disturbing. Um, it was sad and uh, I think wrong, definitely broken. Um, And so what happened was, is because I'm collecting the evidence for this issue, I end up in a position of power over this man's life, where I'm having a big say in whether he continues to be employed or not. And I was faced with the question of, okay, Scott, what do you do with this power? Now, you, can, you may agree or disagree with how I handled this, but in this particular situation, I, d- I chose to take the evidence and turn it over to my superiors and allow them to make this decision about his employment. 
I definitely made, I drew lines. I said, well, he, you know, our employees cannot use their, their company email to do this. That has to stop. But as far as his employment, I made that not my decision. But in, com- in having conversation with my superiors, I actually at times ended up advocating for this man, saying, look, yes, we may find his behavior and his personal life disturbing. We may think it's wrong. Uh, we definitely see that it's broken, but it's not necessar- that's not necessarily grounds for firing if he's a good employee otherwise, if he's not endangering customers, if he's not endangering other employees, if he's not endangering the brand or the company image, then we need to think about that. Now, you may agree or disagree with how I handled that situation, but it's an example of how you can have power over someone in someone's life and think about how am I going to use that power for good rather than for ill. Um, does that make sense? Kind of get it? Okay. Um, so that's a little bit about power. Now, we want to talk about the remnant as well. And um, we have the remnant in this story. His name is Naboth, and he owns a vineyard in a very uh, desirable location. Those of you in real estate, what's it about? Location, 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 right? Naboth's got it. And we've uh, already talked about the significance of land for a follower of God like Naboth. So the fact that Naboth stood up to Ahab, one of the the most powerful men in his culture, and said, no, I'm not going to sell you that land, it demonstrates for us remnant behavior. This is a remnant behavior. Uh, Remnant people will choose to follow God's direction for the life even when they're pressured to compromise. That's what we learn about Naboth. He, he follows God. He do, does God's way even when he's pressured to compromise. You see, he could have taken Ahab's offer and walked away a much wealthier man. Uh, Ahab said, hey, I'll give you a better vineyard. Cool. Or I'll give you a pocket full of cash. And you know the worldly part of me I'm thinking about Naboth, take it, take it, run. That's cool. But you see, Naboth's values were not set on the land and the wealth that it held. He was thinking about God and about his identity in God. Um, And so because he was focused on that, he had that clear direction in his life, he was actually able to stand up to the most powerful man in his culture and say, no, I will not act that way. Um, he didn't compromise on the direction of God for his life. And, and it just raises the question for us, are there any places in our lives where we are feeling that pressure, the pressure to compromise something? We know what's right. We know what God's direction would be on this issue. And yet we're feeling pressure to compromise, to do, you know, bend the rules a little bit. Second thing we learn about remnant behavior from Naboth is uh, that sometimes when you do the right thing, when you follow through with the remnant behavior, you suffer injustice. You suffer consequences. 
In Naboth's case, not only did he, he lose his land, he lost his life. Um, Jezebel conspires to bring false testimony against him, and there was not a lawyer in the land good enough to get him out of, of her story. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Tom uh, talked to us about the story of Elijah and the widow from uh, 1 Kings 17. And in that story, Tom identified the widow as the remnant person. And uh, as a part of her story, her only son dies. And Elijah is quite upset with that. He goes to God, prays passionately to God for this son, and miraculously, the son is brought back to life. Um, it's a little different for Naboth. Naboth dies, and he stays dead. And um, there's a hard truth in this story that for remnant people, sometimes it's not always a happy ending. Sometimes consequences happen, injustice happens, and it doesn't get better. Um, Sometimes you lose the court case even though you're right. Sometimes the bully at school succeeds and the teachers and the principal don't know about it or don't do anything about it, and the bully wins. Sometimes the greedy family member gets the inheritance that really should have been yours. Sometimes the thief steals and we never get repaid. You see, suffering injustice is an unfortunate reality for those who would stand up in life and say, I'm going to be a part of God's remnant people. It puts us in the pattern of Jesus who lived a perfect human life and yet died on a cross. That's who we follow. That's our Savior. That's our leader. The power of evil sometimes will win this side of heaven. So, speaking of injustice, where does God fall when it comes to injustice? Well, Fortunately, in the story, we have the prophet, Elijah. And like Elijah does in in many other places, he puts words to the heart of God. Um, In verse 17, uh, we read these words. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Now, there's a similar uh, word for Jezebel in uh, in verses 23 and 24. So just so you know, you read the rest of the story, and Jezebel doesn't get off the hook here. But the prophet is reminding us something very important in these verses, that that whether um, we're a part of the dysfunctional power structure or whether we're a part of the remnant, 
he's reminding us that God will enact justice. He will. Delayed justice is still justice. Um, ultimate justice is always going to stay in the hands of God. It's not going to be in our hands or our lawyer's hands. It's going to be in the hands of God, and he will bring justice, but it will be in his time. Um, but the encouragement from, from Elijah the prophet here is God, our God, is one who cares about justice. He cares when weaker people are being taken advantage of by stronger people, and he will do something about it that does not go unnoticed. So we've got the dysfunctional power couple, we've got the prophet, we've got the remnant. Now, um, there's, there's a risk in this story of, in, in the way I'm laying it out here, that we we could end up kind of wagging our finger and saying, yeah, God, get those people, right? That's, that's, kind of, that's, that's where my heart goes when I th- start to think about justice. Yeah, God, those people are wrong. Go get them. But before we go down that road too far, I want to draw attention. There's a fourth character or player going on in this story. Um, and we see it in a couple of places. We, we, we see it first in the way God deals with Ahab. Um, he, God clearly, in the verses we just read, holds Ahab responsible for Naboth's death. But you realize Ahab didn't do it. Ahab did not create the plan. He did not kill Naboth. He had nothing to do with it. He enjoyed the benefits but he didn't have anything to do with actually killing the guy, and yet God holds him complicit, complicit responsibility. We see this in another place, though, in, uh, in verses 8 and 11, where it says, So she, meaning Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to who? The elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed. You see, these town elders, these noble people of the, of the town, they conspired to accuse, falsely accuse and kill an innocent man because the dysfunctional power structures told them to. And as far as we can see in the text, They never questioned it, they never pushed back, and they certainly never looked at Jezebel and said, no, we are not going to be a part of this. And because of that, they were complicit. And that's the fourth player in this whole drama, is the complicit ones. Um, Complicit ones are those who just go along for the ride taking up our, you know, our series theme, swimming upstream. Complicit ones are the ones who are in the stream and who are just floating along downstream to wherever the cultural trends take us. Um, complicit ones are those who are 
in the stream and maybe we see the contaminants around us and we're able to say, that's not right. That's kind of bad. And yet we continue to float along and we don't say anything and we don't do anything. We just let the stream go. The, uh, I think the motto of a complicit one would be, uh, don't rock the boat because you might get wet. You don't want to get wet, right? A um, couple of weeks ago, the uh, Today Show interviewed George Clooney and Matt Damon. Uh, they actually had just finished a movie that was coming out, and the producer was Harvey Weinstein. And so rather than talking about the movie, they were talking about Harvey Weinstein and their relationship. And in the clip, I want you to, we're going to play the clip, and I want you to listen to how these gentlemen are wrestling with themselves and how they're wrestling with the Hollywood culture in which they work. Somebody, there were people that brought young actresses to his hotel room. Whoever had that story and didn't write it should be held responsible. I want to know what kind of ad dollars were spent from the wine scene company and from Miramax. Because we should have known this. This is violating women. This is assault. This is, uh, this is silencing. But the idea that he's, you know, committed these kinds of atrocities on him, I don't know who knew. Is there some part of you that we should call him out or ask him? But I don't know what I would have done, you know. I heard from Ben, who heard from Gwyneth that this happened, you know, I don't know how that would have happened. I never saw anything in front of me, but he was bully. He was intimidating, and he was, that was part of who he was. And I've been reading these stories, because I am racking my brain, did I see something, could I have known something, mm-hmm. uh, is there something I could have done? You hear their questions? Who knew? Um, why didn't someone say something? What, what did I see? What, what could I have known? What could I have done? Those are questions that get at the issue of complicity. Um, You see, the fact of the matter is that dysfunctional people, dysfunctional power people, never work in isolation. There are always people around them who who know that they're taking advantage of, of weaker parties, who see something, who feel uncomfortable about a situation. And so Elijah really brings to us, this story brings to us two things to think about in terms of complicity. Number one, being complicit, if we find ourselves in that position, that, that is a place where God holds us equally responsible. Remember, he said to Ahab, you murdered this guy even though Ahab didn't have anything to do with it, technically. He was held complicitly responsible. And I'm sure if we would go back through God's uh, work with those town nobles and elders, there was a conversation where, that God, where they met God face to face, and he said, look, guys, you were complicit in what happened to Naboth. And so we have to deal with that. If we're going to find ourselves as complicit people, then we have to understand that God holds us responsible in those places. 
Um, and so that moves us into the second thing, is examination. Are there any places in my life where I'm sort of being complicit with the dysfunctional power people of the world? Let me, let me just give you a couple of examples, uh, dangerous examples. Um, where, uh, where do my political views and the way I vote, where does that make me complicit with those who are acting contradictory to the principles of God? Don't throw rotten tomatoes. Are there, are there any habits or any choices in my life that, that are resulting in weaker parties being exploited in some way? You see, you see how the, the type of thinking I'm trying to encourage here. Um, a ministry colleague of mine, he leads a worldwide ministry that advocates for victims of human trafficking. And one of the uh, mottos or catchphrases that he uses frequently uh, in his publications is, shop in the direction of freedom. Now, it's a simple way of, of reminding us that just simply the things we buy on a daily basis are connected to people who produce them. And are there any ways in those connections where people are being exploited unfairly, unjustly, and then shaping our purchasing habits to, to recognize that. And so you have the, the rise of fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate and all those types of things as attempts to do that. Um, another issue uh, in our day of mass shootings and, and domestic terrorism threats and stuff like that, the, uh, the uh, police officials and people like that, they've come up with a phrase for us which starts out, see something, what? Say something. It's the, same, it's the same idea. Rather than being silent about an issue where you see something that's wrong or you're, you know there's something just not right there and staying silent, no, say something to somebody. You see, so often, I think most frequently, the way that we become complicit is by staying silent. By staying silent. Think about Naboth. How many people had to stay silent in order for him to be falsely accused and killed. Now, you know, complicity, this is, it's a really gnarly issue. And I realize I'm probably raising more questions than I am giving you answers. But that's kind of where Elijah's story takes us today. And um, I would love it if I could just end this message kind of neat and tidy and say, okay, these are the three points, and these are the three things that you need to do. Have a happy lunch. But it just doesn't leave us that way. The story of Elijah and Naboth and Ahab and Jezebel, instead, it leaves us in a position to wrestle. It has us wrestling with, with power. Where do I have power? And how am I using it? It leaves us in a, a position of wrestling with, where are those places in life where I need to be a stand-up Naboth kind of remnant man or woman and not compromise? 
And it leads us to wrestle with this idea of where, where in my life am I complicit or I'm playing a complicit part with the power structures that exploit the weak. So I don't have a lot of neat and tidy answers, but I can tell you this. We serve a God who will be extremely pleased with you and with me if we will simply be the kind of people who will wrestle. Who will wrestle with ourselves, will wrestle with God in an honest way, who will take these questions and say, God, examine me and examine my heart and my life so that I'm more like you and more like Naboth and more like, ultimately, Jesus. Are you willing to wrestle? Let's pray. Jesus, um, we thank you that you're a God of grace, that you're a God of mercy, and uh, we thank you today that, that you're a God of justice because that's just as important. We thank you that you're complete in all of these ways and you're perfect. And uh, Jesus, as we prayed earlier, we confess that we're, we're weak, we're, we're broken in many ways. There's places where, where this story intersects with our life and we know that probably some things need to change. But we know that we can't do that without you. And so Jesus, we're reaching out to you and, and asking that you would... Uh, that you would just move in us, that you would help us to wrestle honestly, that you would move, remove justification and rationalization from our minds. And, and where we're, we're out of line and we need to change, that you would empower us to say, yes, I want that to happen. Jesus, I want to pray particularly for, for uh, those of us here who have different positions of power and how we use it. Jesus, would you help us always to use it for good? And uh, Jesus, I'm sure there, there are uh, people here this morning who are finding themselves in a Naboth kind of position where they know what's right, but they're feeling the pressure to do, to cut corners and not do exactly what's right. I pray, Jesus, that you would uh, infuse within us a spirit of remnant that we could be the remnant people of God in a culture that's, that's walking away from you. And in Jesus, this issue of complicity, it's, it's just the, the waters just seem muddy in trying to figure out what, what my role is. I pray that you would clear the waters and you would help each one of us in our, in our individual situations and circumstances to, to sort out how we can be less complicit and more uh, honoring of you and more honoring and protecting of the weak and the vulnerable in our culture. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.